Hi there. I'm Wendy Hobbs for Knowledge Counts, a podcast of the Canadian Institute of Quantity Surveyors. Today we're talking to Kirk Burney, Senior Director Hotel and Restaurant Renovations at Northland Properties. We're talking about site development, including site selection, being a self-performing company, and tenant improvements. Tell me about your role within your company. So in my role for our company is is fairly unique when it comes to restaurants and and our and how the hospitality companies work. Um, I am involved deeply in the development of franchise and corporate stores. I do the site reviews. I work with the the leasing teams. I work with uh, third party contractors and third party architects on the franchisees' behalf because I represent the franchisee team when I'm doing all of these reviews. We break gets broken in half as soon as we establish whether it's going to be a corporate store or a franchise store. If it goes a corporate store, then it goes completely in-house and our designers take over and our in-house consultants take over. If it goes to a franchise direction, then our designers still are deeply involved because we in-house the design. And once the design is established, then we hand the whole project over to the franchisees and the franchisees already pre-approved sub-consultants to go and finish the work. Why is it important to have someone with your skills on the development team? With my background expertise in restaurants, it allows, uh, and, and my site reviews, um, it's super important that whoever is engaging in the site reviews at the beginning stage and creating the, the risk assessments have some background in whatever industry they're working at. Um, with me specifically, because I've, I've been an operator for so, so many years in the restaurant industry, that I know where the pitfalls are. So it's super powerful to have somebody like that on your team that can that is involved, whether it be retail, whether it be a construction house or, or anything, somebody who gets the understanding of how the space is going to be used and can easily and quickly identify what problems may come if the construction isn't done properly, if the design isn't done properly, and perhaps maybe even with the site itself. That, that exper- expertise is invaluable. Uh, it provides so much insight into what you can potentially avoid or even if a site is even worth looking at. When should a company bring someone like you onto a team? At the, for our company, uh, and my role specifically, for the initial um, negotiation stage for sites, the real estate and leasing teams really bring me in um, as part of the construction team at the site selection stage. So right on early, before we start negotiating, I go in and, and make sure that the site's even going to be worth looking at. So we're looking at um, egress and ingress, how people get in and out of the building, how people, uh, the garbage, how does the garbage get in and out of the building, how does deliveries happen, how, do, uh, how will people end up using the space. That start, it starts there. From there, I turn to what does the base building structure allow for us? Can I put a mezzanine inside it? Do I have 22 and a half feet in order to do so? Like all of those pieces start coming out at, the, at that stage. So it kind of defines where our negotiations will start. And it allows the, the leasing teams to have a, a monetary value. Of, if I can put a mezzanine in and get 100 extra, 100 extra more seats in a restaurant, well, that's only going to cost a certain amount of money depending on the structure we've got. So it allows our, our, our teams more affordability to make different requests to the landlord teams. What's your process for estimating in a previously occupied space? So the processing for estimating in a space uh, where you're not sure what you're going to find, um, I actually do that a lot. 
uh, in a lot of the renovations we go into, um, my job is to is to walk in and, and, and establish what the, the potential problems are going to be. Um, and it's it's sometimes it's hard, but it's it's just understanding that where you're going to put something. So you have to have your base plan with you. So you've gone into a space, you've done a deal, you've you understand that you're going to take on a space, you've done your initial risk assessment. Now, what else can go wrong? And that's where things start getting a little checky. And what we do is we we allot a specific amount of money to each section. So if we know think that dem the demolition is going to cost five thousand dollars, we will then reassess and say, well, you know what, we're going to put ten thousand dollars as a budget line for this, and then. Um, and then as we move forward through the budgeting process and the, and the construction process, we can reevaluate that budget. So we actually step up our budgets three different ways. We've got a working budget, or so we've got a preliminary budget, a working budget, and then an actual budget. It's the only way to get to the final numbers that's going to be true. If, we're due, if, we, if I've done my job right, the difference between the actual budget, budget that we're actually working with and the final costs are within 2%. Two, 2%. And that's most of my jobs hit that. A lot of it is is just being smart about your risk assessments and attributing the right amount of dollars to the right challenges. Electrical is a big thing. Sometimes some of these buildings you have to go in and strip the electrical right out. So having the electricians with you to look at the panels, look at the wiring and where everything is, is super important because that can make or break an entire budget. With so many possibilities for ballooning costs, how do you make sure your budget is maintained? The budgeting's all in, in stages, right? If you don't do your budgeting properly, and you're going to go out with a forecast for sure. Your, your preliminary forecast is going to be, you know, huge. And then, because that's where you're going to base all your decisions from, right? So can we actually do the job? Is it going to be financially viable for us to do it at this level? All of those decisions that get made before you even bring on consultants have to happen. So you start with a preliminary. We, we call it a performa, where we literally take past performance buildings, how much it actually cost, break it into literally a square foot. So if I've got a 7,000 square foot building, I know that roughly the electrical is gonna cost me $22 a square foot for uh, conversation's sake. And then I can establish what my cost sh should look like. And then we move to the next budgeting stage, which is digging in and ripping open walls and seeing what's involved. How does your relationship with your consultants work? So our relationship with, with our consultants is pretty unique in our company. Um, our, we, our company is a self-performing uh, consultant team and a self-performing construction team. So we have in-house designers. That's not necessarily afforded to all of our franchisees, however. Um, they uh, may have to go outside for, for a designer. And when we're talking about how the space looks and how it feels, it's really a collaboration. So the designer comes to the table with some ideas. The operators of the restaurants come to the idea to the table with some great ideas of what they want to see in the restaurants. Um, and then we go back and forth and, and figure out within the budget that we've already established what's really doable. And then from there, uh, the designers now have an intent of the building. They get uh, the idea what the end result needs to be, and they go create a plan for us to start working with. Once the design plan is established and we all approve it, then it goes out to the sub-consultants to start doing their life safety drawings, architectural drawings. Once those are done, then we engage the MEPs. 
and bring in uh, those consultants. And all throughout the stage, I'm involved to make sure that everybody's moving in the right direction, whether at corporate or our franchise teams. So it helps to, to have a really trusted partners come together and collaborate at the very beginning. Let's talk about what procurement looks like for your different types of projects. Because we're a self-performing construction company, everybody is our employee. So we don't necessarily go to, to, um, to tenders. It's, it's all our own physical employees and our own procurement teams. However, um, on the franchise side of PACES, all of the uh, consultants and the contractors need to be approved by myself. And so there are some preferred vendors and, and consultants that we work with that uh, we establish relationships over the many, many years that we rely on to get help when we need it. Uh, whether we you know, have them come out and do a site, re- site walk with me, I get a instant third party uh, relationship with them so they can, they can consult with me and it doesn't cost a lot of money. It costs a coffee and a handshake and a friendly smile and building a relationship. And that's what really a lot of this is about, is, is having strong relationships that you can lean on when you need to. When I'm at self-performing, I meant it. Like, we'll land our self-performing construction team into a city and hire people in that city. Like, when we're, when we're building things, a hotel takes three and a half years beginning to end. So I'm offering somebody a job for three and a half years, right? So that all, and between that, during that course of three and a half years, well, I might do another deal for a hotel and a restaurant. So then I just pick up the entire construction team and move it. What are some of the advantages of being a self-performing company? The biggest advantage to being self-performing is money. Um, I don't have any markups. There are no middlemen. It is a general contractor, uh, or we call them a, a, um, a general site supervisor, and trades underneath them. And they're all in our payroll. Um, that is the biggest advantage to being self-performing. Um, there are other advantages are I can control workflow better. No, I don't lose a trade because I picked up three other jobs down the street, right? I'm never fighting that way. So I get to control my timelines. I get to control all the pieces that happened day for day on my site. The disadvantages of being a self-performing company is that sometimes you end up with a narrow window view. So you don't necessarily get the um, new technology being brought to your door by other vent by other contra- contractors. You don't get uh, you get stale ideas moving because you don't get any influx of life. Um, it's a, it's definitely a, a high risk, um, and then it also comes with the potential challenges of you're managing your own staff. So overtime is a real thing, right? We we try not to move into overtime, but when you're dealing with a a, um, a non-self-performing company. Really, it's just a contract price at the end of the dollar value. I don't care how long it takes you to get there or what you do to get there, but on Monday, you're going to be finished. And they do everything they do, can do by Monday. Self-performing companies can't do that unless they're willing to pay a lot of money in overtime. So you just have to schedule better so you don't have to run into that. You know, as, as much as there's the disadvantage of, of potentially being stale in your ideas, you also get um, some serious expertise you know, you, you know when you've got a site super that you're moving from hotel or restaurant to hotel and restaurant that they've built your property before. They know how to do it. So all of a sudden your timelines get shorter because of expertise. And the pitfalls that we learned at the previous property 
all get captured, understood, and, and solved before the next one starts. So you get to, there's no more relearning. You get, you've captured all that learning and you move on it. When you're having to constantly bring in new trades to, to negotiate a better deal, there's that learning curve that's really dangerous. And, and that can cost you money and time. And fortunately, I don't have to deal with that. What are the risks of being a self-performing company? When you're a self-performing company, the, the, the risks get to they go both ways. I mean, uh, the risk is definitely mitigated by the learning curves and, and keeping everything tight and almost repeating the same thing over and over again. Um, it, it really establishes a, a strong uh, momentum and uh, just helps to save money and, and costs, and you get to avoid uh, pitfalls that have happened in the past, especially with specification of materials. You find something that doesn't work, well, why would you go and buy that for seven hotels or seven restaurants? You, you get to stop and reload. Um, the, the additional risk that we take as a self-performing company is if everybody gets sick, all of a sudden my schedules don't get hit. Right? It's not like I can go and buy and, and hire another 15 electricians for a job. Like the, so the labor pool is dramatically affects us. Um, and so all of a sudden our schedules have to be slightly, slightly flexible, and we deal with that on a constant basis. Um, whereas when you're, non, when you're a, a um, performing construction company, you're hiring third-party subcontractors, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like your your risk is really hard and stop, and there's penalties for missing your timelines. Well, there's no penalties in a self-performing company for missing your timelines, except for looking in the mirror and looking at your budget going up. So there's there's definitely some pros and cons, and there's a lot of risk uh, both ways. We found that the the risk is mitigated uh, for a self-performing because the size of our company. So we we have between seven and ten construction sites throughout Canada, and the United States, all active right now, all building hotels. I think there's one in Scotland as well right now. So there's definitely a lot of movement for us, and we can move people from site to site if we need to, but it is expensive. What's the most interesting thing about your job? Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about my role is the ability to integrate with the operations teams and take their day-to-day -day learning and apply it immediately to uh, projects that are in queue or in construction right now. If there's a, an adaptation in, in technology and in, in how servers or kitchens work, within reason, without impacting base building construction, we can adapt to that very quickly. Um, and uh, you know, part of my role is I, I'm the designer for kitchens and bars. So I lay out the kitchens for our company. We work with the operations team to make, through, make sure that the key equipment we're laying in is going to be exactly what they need to reduce the amount of steps it takes to produce any item. And it makes us tighter as a company and is a really great camaraderie between the operations times, the end users, the, the me in the middle of development and, and construction, and then our construction teams. So it's a really awesome bridge and our company is better for it. I can't see our com a company not willing to embrace that and have that, un that incredible amount of power putting all of the, the, the players in the same room and working together. How important are relationships in your job? Relationships are superpower. I, I don't think I could ever be where I am without positive relationships. 
of course there's going to be negative relationships and, and you want to get out of those or end them as fast as possible and pull a Band-Aid off. But developing and, and strengthening powerful, positive relationships is so important on, at every level, whether it's, whether it's the architect team, the engineering team, the construction team, the operations teams, they all have to be in the same place. And as soon as one of those teams disalign, it breaks the whole system. And your relationship has to be strong enough to, to deal with any, things, any challenges that may come up, but at the same time, be understanding that other departments have got different, um, they've got different priorities that may not align with you. So being able to negotiate your relationship to get the things that you need done. It's, there is so much um, importance in maintaining good relationships, whether that just means paying people on time making people happy, making sure that you're not uh, being um, negative in your viewpoints when you need to get something done. There's always a positive way to do it. And when you're positive, the, the feedback that you get from your consultants or your other team members will be positive. And that's better for making things happen. It really is. Let's talk about tenant improvements. How are they different from creating your own space? Um, when we're looking at tenant improvements. There's a bunch of different things you need to look at. Um, primarily, you have need to define your scope. Uh, the scope can uh, dramatically increase and decrease the rest of the amount of work that's going to be done in, in the project. The, uh, once your scope is, is established, then you need to start looking at more particulars and looking at the trades you need to hire, specifically consultants at the beginning. You need to get yourself a really good consultant that you can trust and that has got your best interests at heart. Once you establish your, your consultants, then you can move on from there and really get into the nitty gritty of, of choosing what fit out you want to do, what the application is for. Um, for negotiating for landlords, uh, my role becomes uh, reviewing the landlord and tenant scope of work to ensure that the landlord is going to do what they require for us and that the tenant is going to be able to perform what the landlord wants us to. I also do the risk management to ensure that the landlord understands the risks they're about to take with us, and we understand any risks that we're about to take, and I put a dollar value to those risks, because those can get very expensive, especially when both teams are not being forthcoming. What are some of the risks with tenant improvements? The risks that I see mainly uh, from a tenant piece really comes down to the landlord not understanding what the whole scope of the work is. They represent a portion of the work that they understand, but they're not construction people. They're generally brokers who just need to make a deal. So all of the pieces, like you need a, a pollution control device on top of your roof, and the landlord will say, this is a requirement. Well, it's not a municipality requirement. So we go and explore that. Well, that's a $45,000 touch. Those types of things landlords don't understand. So you start getting into serious complications, especially if your uh, development team doesn't understand that the landlord doesn't know what they're talking about. So that's the biggest risk, is intelligent conversation with both parties understanding what needs to happen. Often landlords will not mislead uh, purely about uh, pure intent. They will mislead because they just don't understand. And sometimes the tenant has to take the leadership role in teaching the landlord what's really involved. And that, that's where you start to form a really good um, 
relationship with your landlord and you can move things along faster. So, so when we're looking at uh, associating costs to risk, it's uh, not going into it blindly, walking into a property and doing a walkthrough deep with a, an electrician, with a plumber, with a trade that you, that you trust, that you can walk through the whole property and understand what might be behind that wall. Because you're not going to be allowed to open it up until the deal's signed. So you need to understand that, that there are things that previous tenants may have done to the space that you're going to inherit. And you have to look for all of the, the potential pitfalls. Um, we inherited a, a property uh, that literally the tenant jackhammered up the slab, put a whole bunch of electrical, not in conduits. Nobody knew about it. And we went to put a staircase in. And we end up, we end up although we did all of the proper um, soundings, all the proper uh, x-rays, we ended up cutting a major electrical wire. And it cost us almost $100,000. So those things happen. The only thing you can do is is work through it and make sure that your best trades and your best um, consultants are with you to ensure that any pitfalls are brought up and some things you just can't avoid. Can you give an example of a difficulty you've had when dealing with a landlord? So we were in a property in Toronto and uh, uh, we had negotiated an as-is takeover of the space. Uh, we had established what our risks were going to be uh, and understood them. The um, three quarters of the way through the demolition of the property, the landlord changed the terms of the contract on us and uh, uh, became quite hostile. Uh, we worked through it, but we, what we understood is the landlord um, wanted us to put a wall up in front of an escalator, which would have been against code. And we had to actually bring the city in to help us with the landlord saying, you can't actually put a wall that close to an escalator and still have people walking up and down safely. Somebody's going to get hurt. So uh, it caused a significant challenge, but we got through it with bringing in other experts. So sometimes bringing in other experts outside what you wouldn't normally thought about helps you get through that kind of thing. Sometimes the cities are good and they help us. That's why we get permits. Thanks to Kirk Burney for speaking with us today about site development and tenant improvements. For Knowledge Counts, I'm Wendy Hobbs.